bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Vratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I am speaking with the Executive Director of the Merck Family Fund, Daryl Young, to discuss the leading edge in sustainability, who is making change on the ground, and how to support them. Daryl, thank you for joining us. Daryl, it's great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've had a really amazing career, and I'm always learning more about it. Let's start with today, though. Tell us what your role is at the Merck Family Fund. So I am the executive director of the Merck Family Fund. I'm the third executive director. It's a foundation that's been around for over 50 years. And we're at an interesting time where we're redesigning our philanthropic infrastructure to look at how do we meet the moment and the opportunities that are presenting themselves. The family is four different branches. Trustees are basically located around the East Coast, and we support projects in New England and in the South. Wow, that's amazing. We'll come back to that and hear more about it. I want to talk about maybe the beginnings of your career working in infrastructure and government. And you worked first for the California State Assembly for politicians. What was it that attracted you to that job? Well, you know, I'm a recovering bureaucrat, so I've had different roles as a bureaucrat. I started in the assembly because I recognized, having worked for nonprofits, that the opportunity to condition and change things on the inside was a unique opportunity, particularly at a time when California was a leader in staff, both in the knowledge of its staff and the professionals of its staff. And I thought this would be a great way of learning more about a wide number of topics. If you're a generalist, it is an excellent place to be, to learn so much and to have such a wide set of contacts and to immerse yourself on virtually any cutting edge issue. Yeah, I can agree with that. I never worked for the state legislature, but I've worked for other legislators and electeds. It's a great job for a generalist. But when did you decide to move on from that and you were appointed to a state agency? Would you consider that when you really started working in infrastructure? I had taken a detour. I worked for the legislature for about four years, and then I wanted to go back into advocacy. So I became uh, the lobbyist, the government relations person for the Sierra Club. And then within that institution, I became its communications director nationally. And then one day, a state senator uh, by the name of Tom Hayden, one of the Chicago Seven, was in my office and said, you should come back to the legislature. And I did. And he was the chair of the Senate Natural Resources where we did a lot of oversight. So through the oversight work that we did, I learned a lot about how, how do government agencies actually function. That intrigued me. When the governor of California was running for governor, uh, the senator said someone desperately needs to go work for that candidacy so that he knows what to say, how to say it to different constituencies. You get yourself in a lot of trouble if you use the wrong words. So I took a leave of absence and worked for, for Governor Davis when he was running for office. Then after that, Governor Davis asked me to stay on. That's when 
long story short, was appointed to the California Department of Conservation. And in that role, we play a whole set of responsibilities. We're responsible for, for all mining, for seismic safety, for geology, for farmland preservation, for timber harvest plan review, for recycling. There's a whole set of things that the department was responsible for, which made it interesting to me. No one was ever going to dress up as an owl or as a fish. My friends who do that would never be protesting in the office. And so in, the, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of how do you engineer something so that it doesn't break during an earthquake, or how do you ensure that farmland is preserved, those were issues that intrigued me. It was, it was outside the norm, and it had its own separate non-general fund budget. That's interesting. It's something I really wanted to ask you about, Daryl, is about how we define infrastructure and how that maybe has changed with trends, but also how there's outsized attention on certain aspects of infrastructure. So when you were in that role, were there parts of infrastructure you really needed people to care about that weren't getting attention? I think there are basically three types of, of infrastructure. There's the physical infrastructure, so roads, bridges, dams, energy infrastructure, there's the human infrastructure, the capacity to deploy those physical infrastructures, but also the ability to design them. And I think the third infrastructure is social infrastructure. Does a community support and understand why something is being built? If you can integrate the three as part of a Venn diagram, you will have a successful infrastructure ecosystem, if you will. If you lack one of those three elements, either people won't know why they're doing it or the project will become oversized, outsized, and a boondoggle. So I learned through the arc of my career that you need to have all three. Too often we focus on the physical, not on the social and the financial. Wow, that's really, really helpful, Daryl, for you to have that thoughtful framework about what infrastructure is. And so when you were in this role, running a state agency with some of the less known infrastructure, maybe, where was the emphasis in those areas? Did people even know that there were three layers to infrastructure? I don't think people do. I think people focus government bureaucrats, and I don't say that in a pejorative way, are about the design. They're not thinking like technology about the user interface, the user experience. When I was at the Department of Conservation, we had money to establish a system where people who were doing recycling could interface with it, both the people who were doing the recycling as well as the retailers. But we wanted to devise a system that was easy to use. That was something that was not initially thought of in most bureaucracies, they want an efficient system that's going to give them the information they need, not is it easy for the consumer, or in this case, the citizen, to enter data in. So it's a way of looking beyond just the what is the piece of technology or kit we need. Instead, how does this interface with the public and, why, and do they understand why we're doing what we're doing? Yeah. Okay. Let's trace how you're able to answer that question as you move on in your career, Daryl. Before your current role, you spent 14 years at the Summit Foundation yep. leading the Sustainable Cities Program. That's an amazing tenure, and I'm sure that you really got to know what was happening all around the world. So tell us more about that work that you did there and how you shaped or framed infrastructure in that role. So if you remember, there was a thing called the ARRA that the Obama administration launched as a response to the fiscal cliff that we went off of. And there were tens of millions of dollars put into the system. Some of that money, roughly 30, went to municipal governments, set up a variety of energy-related activities. It was very unspecific. So a set of mayors independently set up 
these offices of sustainability. And at the time, I had just started at the Summit Foundation, and our program was called Innovations in Sustainable Design. And when I asked our trustees, what do you think that means? They go, we want you to figure that out. So I went back to my experience as a bureaucrat and said, there are sets of bureaucrats that are atypical of the stereotype, that are innovative, thoughtful, passionate. And in some cases, they have no businesses being in government, but they are, they, they change things. They are innovators. And so I discovered in the LinkedIn group, 15 city sustainability directors who were new in their job, were trying to figure out what was going on. I talked to them for about 90 minutes and I said, is there something we could support? And refreshingly, they said, no, there's nothing you can support until we figure out what we're working on. And so they engineered a set of things they wanted to try, but they wouldn't necessarily have the money for. Yeah, that's what we do in philanthropy. We take risk. Let's go ahead and try those things out. Fast forward roughly 14 years. What was 15 people is now 250 cities with 2,500 people. This network, the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, is now also around the world. There's the Carbon Neutral Cities Network, which is affiliated with it. So we help to build a practice, a field of competency on all things sustainability, really, with an emphasis on climate, to be sure. That's really impressive, Daryl. And I'm sure people are familiar with those offices and those people in the geographies that they work and might not realize that there's a whole infrastructure and a network worldwide that supports them. Please help us understand the role of philanthropy here again. We know that government issues tons of money in the billions to get stuff built. And philanthropy doesn't have those kinds of dollars, but how does it create change? And philanthropy looks like where you work. What else does it look like out there in, in the infrastructure world? There's an old maxim that says, if you know one foundation, all you know is one foundation. Each foundation does it differently. My foundation, both the foundation that I just left and the foundation I'm working for recognizes that there is not enough money out there. But what we don't have in financial capital, we have in social capital. So much of our investment is based on the relationships that we have, not just with other foundations, with other institutions. And my role is to divine, are those ideas, are those concepts uh, deployable? using my hat as a former bureaucrat, using my hat for a short time, I worked in public relations and advertising. So understanding how much is marketing versus how much is real. And then working with other funders who have other sets of skills, skill sets, whether they are engineers, in some cases, philanthropy is made up of people who gain their wealth from working in technology. And so part of what I do is, is to work with other foundations. We don't really invest in the actual capital costs, what we invest is the capacity costs. And, you know, with the trillion dollar plus opportunity that is out there in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the IIJA, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, those two measures are game changers. In the truest sense of the word, they are actually much larger than anything else in the world. That opportunity that's out there is, could be easily misused or go after trivial and false solutions. Our job is to give capacity to the institutions that don't have the capacity to ramp up and know how to invest those dollars or to apply for those dollars. For the first time, this measure is focusing not just on contractors or changing the market. It's giving a wider set of people the opportunity to participate in the system. It is committing a certain part of the money to disadvantaged communities, to marginalized communities. 
How do we give them agency, not only to share in the dollars, but to have a voice in how those dollars are spent? So much of the money that's coming out is going to be determined by the states, city halls. There are decisions by the federal government. The federal government can condition how the money is spent, but where the money is spent, in many cases, is going to lie in the state house. And so there are traditional people who know how to do infrastructure. But this is a different form of infrastructure. This is both the social infrastructure, because states are going to be asked by the federal government to look at the social aspects. Wow, there's so many interesting words you used in there. So capacity versus capital, right? Did I hear that right? That's really powerful. I think we can all agree government and institutions need better capacity. What does that mean, though? What capacities do you think are most important to build? What are you investing in in order to deliver capital projects? I'll give you an example. In some cases, the states are ill-equipped to deploy a certain set of things. The example that I like to think about, this is no disregard to states as a former state official, States now are responsible for deploying electric vehicle infrastructure. It's like setting up phone booths. Most state DOTs have no experience in how to set up an electric vehicle charging infrastructure that is fair, equitable. So it's not just on a highway, it's where people live. They don't necessarily know how to maintain those. And there's going to be a lot of confusion around where do you put a charging infrastructure? Who can get access to it? What times? And how do you ensure that that infrastructure is not just built, but maintained? The temptation is going to be to go to a vendor will learn about how to do it at the expense of government. Good bureaucrats, good good officials are going to sit down and figure out how do we co-create this? How do we have ownership, but not at the level of actually physically repairing these electric vehicle charging stations, but working with a set of vendors? And how do we go beyond finding people who are just good at bidding for contracts? How do we go to a, a set of people? How do we create a new field of people if we're truly focused on the equity components of the social components, is there ability to prototype a set of individuals, community-based individuals that can maintain and run under a similar rubric, uh, charging infrastructure? Uh, the example I have is in Hong Kong, there are jitneys, in essence, small buses. They all look the same. They all run the same, but they're individually owned because there's a set of regulations that require they have to run at a certain time in a certain way. And there are some cases that these jitneys are owned by individual families. Can we stand something up like that? It's a distributed form of infrastructure, which can be inefficient, but it also can be very efficient, which is a higher degree of focus. Those are the kind of things that I think, if you're interested in infrastructure beyond physical mm-hmm. building of things, services, mm-hmm. that's where I think the opportunity lies. That's really interesting, too. Why should we care about distributed infrastructure, though, Daryl? Why is this a good idea for smaller groups or individuals to run the services. Yeah, I think if you have a single company that's doing all of that, you end up a slave to the proclivities of that individual. Mm. So if we only had one electric vehicle manufacturer and that person who owned that company happened to have opinions or attitudes that were reprehensible, you're locked into being owned by them uh, because you can only do what they want to do. To the extent that there's a healthy marketplace of people being involved, a wider set of people being involved, I feel that innovation is not stifled. There are those who are going to argue that innovation comes from one individual, but I think innovation comes from competition. In a case where you want innovation in government, you have to have a certain level of the the marketplace has to 
in a way, be set up by government in a mm -hmm. certain way, in concert with people who have the people's interest as part, much in the same way that there's tendering in London. You ride a double-decker bus in London, they all look the same, but they're run by one of 12 international corporations set standards, set very high standards, set the standards by, by Transfer for London, which is a government entity. We need some of that going on yeah. with, the, with that kind of infrastructure. So in uh, the cities or on the issues you're working on in the United States, what does that work look like up front? Those, it sounds like a real change in those first few months or years of imagining the infrastructure, for example, the EV charging. It, can you talk about what people need to do differently or are doing differently, who then will go out and procure differently? So this is a 10-year investment strategy. Okay. But it changed market. It's for the first time, it's a market approach. It's an approach that's going, to, it's an industrial policy. I think the people who are going to be most successful in all this are going to be able to be able to balance the financial benefit of it mm -hmm. with the social benefit. I think that's your leading edge. If you can genuinely, authentically engage certain communities to advocate for you, both where I told you about building capacity for advocates, if they're advocating with you because they see that what you're doing is earnest and genuine, then you have that added advantage. And if you are running your side of the house well, meaning you deliver the services, you are uh, responsible with your, your financing, and you are transparent to your partner, in essence, government, I think you have a, you have a leading edge. Now, that's notwithstanding, there's going to be all kinds of political pressure, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have an awareness of the political pressure that comes on, but a lot of this is going to be, as a bureaucrat, I can tell you that a lot of it is done very fairly. Most of it is done very fairly. Mm-hmm. Not just who you know, it's also, are you putting together a genuine proposal that is providing value for money? You know, in some cases, government is starting to think about not lowest cost, but best service. Good examples in tendering around that, not just the lowest cost. The United States has got a lot to learn when it comes along that, but more and more agencies and departments are starting to see it. How do they learn? How do agencies and departments build this knowledge and capacity about thinking of partners, contractors? and tendering differently. Yeah, I think learning is occurring now because we have a next generation of people mm. who are coming to government for a whole set of different reasons. People are dipping in and out, having from the private sector, working in the public sector for a certain period of time. You're a good example of that. And I also think that the friction of learning from each other has been decreased through podcasts like this, through people writing up what they're working on. And even in in spite of the COVID crisis, people are still talking to each other via virtual conversations like you and I are having. And the ability to send things to someone electronically in 10 seconds or less is speeding the level of knowledge that's being shared. It also creates a plethora of information, too much information that's hard to wade through. So my advice is to develop a set of people that you know who can validate and vouch for things, send things that they find interesting, but they don't know what it means. People who are going to succeed are those who are going to have a deep network that are based on curiosity, based on an ability to experiment, and to admit what they don't know. Humbleness is, is going to be important. If you have a slick brochure with a slick presentation, slide deck, when you go to talk to a government agency, that's fine, <laughs> but you're not going to stand out because everyone has that. Everyone can buy a slick slide deck. Not everyone can express humility and curiosity and confidence at the same time. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's great advice for anyone out there who wants to thrive in this new world that we're in and, yep. and that's so distributed and with so much change. 
I also want to pull out from what you said that maybe we don't need so many slide decks because there is, it's sort of like the medium is the message and maybe we can get back more into more dialogue. And that's what I've been noticing, Daryl, like the value of just talking, but with some skill with other people to create meaning and answers together, not just like, here's my talking points uh, thrown onto slides. Now let's look at yours. I used to tell staff um, that we wanted to employ the 666 rule. No more than six bullets per slide, no more than six words per bullet, no more than six slides without some sort of graphic that is interesting, that gives you a pause. It's really hard because people who are nervous giving their presentations want to read their slides and less is more. I think to the extent that you are saying things that are memorable. When you look at tech pitches, so often, you know, people are pitching their product or whatever. So often you just get lost in that. And as someone who has reviewed proposals from a variety of different firms with different vendors, both in government and in the private sector, your eyes just glaze over after you've heard the fourth person use the same buzzwords. So you have to have differentiators. That's more good advice for folks who want to work in infrastructure. I also focus in my work, Daryl, on understanding the arc and archetypes of information that are very universal because we're all humans and we might need to all start with our hopes and then what we're experiencing in the present, what we've experienced in the past, and then talking about the future. There's kind of, I think, really tried and true ways of engaging people without a lot of fanfare or show and tell. I think that's right. I mean, I think to say you can tell a story and get people to imagine something. You know, you and I know each other because we've worked on transit before. And when, when transit geeks talk about all-door boarding or they talk about headways, <laughs> you know, I try to imagine my, how I would explain it to my parents. And they wouldn't know what that meant. But if I said, you know, imagine if a bus came every six minutes and it was safe and easy to use and you knew where it went and it was clearly explained and, mar and marked, people say, yeah, I want some of that. As opposed to, we increase our headways. <laughs> That's I think, the challenge is a lot of people who are making decisions have a technical knowledge and understand the buzzwords but when you can reduce it to a, without being overly reductive, if you can reduce the explanation of what you're trying to achieve to something that they could explain to their bosses who may not, and elected officials, who may not have that level of knowledge, you've won. Because they mm -hmm. know you know the technical aspects of it, but you can explain a story or visualize an experience that is going to get people where they need to mm -hmm. be. So if it's on water, imagine a water system that doesn't back up, that delivers clean, fresh water on a regular basis, that uh, you never see a story in the paper about having water treatment facilities. Yeah. That's something people can relate to as opposed to, you know, we are going to come up with the best way of cleaning water using, you know, ozonation or something. And those are important things. I'm not denigrating. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it might reveal a tension. I'm curious what you think between private entities or corporations that want to have something that feels really proprietary and special and unique versus the public that needs to see what we have in common. That clean water coming out of the faucet is actually very universal and isn't about some special technology. Because I think when we use more accessible language, we see our commonality, but there are still forces that want to divide and conquer. Do you see that tension? I think that there is always that notion of proprietary language or proprietary product that makes you the differentiator. And at some point, people will, will catch up to you. They will find a similar technology, which then you no longer have a leading market advantage. I think at the end of the day, your market advantage is not only the IP that you have, but it's the personality and the working relationship that you have. My new job, I've had to change healthcare providers 
And for most of my life, I've had one healthcare provider, which was easy to use, not difficult, very user-friendly. And now I really regret not having that opportunity because they're not here in the Boston area. One-stop shop, everything is integrated. Now I have to go engineer this and kind of DIY it myself. My loyalty to my previous healthcare provider is based on the ease of use. I think that loyalty, which is what you're trying to build, is not just having a proprietary product. You get a great product, but if you don't really feel connected, you'll lose your business quickly. Yeah, that's really interesting because infrastructure, it coexists with people who really um, do feel a connection to it and want Both to... Both infrastructure is as important as physical infrastructure. And particularly in, in, from a data perspective as well, for a lot of people who are trying to do the data piece of it, it can get very, to the average bureaucrat, government person, it can be a little intimidating. That's why many state governments hire people to help develop an RFP. The ability to have it understood and the ability to put yourself into the shoes of the people who are making decisions who may not have the technical prowess is how you get the information infrastructure, the data and the technological infrastructure owned and sold and connected to the client. Kara, let's zoom in a little bit on sustainable infrastructure, since that's where you've spent a lot of your time and have a lot of expertise. Where do you think the forefront of sustainable infrastructure is right now? So I think for the last 10 years, we've been looking at soft paths, more biophilic, if you will, meaning nature-based solutions to a variety of problems, whether it be water treatment, whether it be water conveyance, um, focusing just on water right now, um, you know, porous pavements. So there is technology involved, but how do you assure that the movement treatment of water, for example, is occurring in going where it wants to go. Now, I recognize that in environments in which there's already a hardscape or there's already a whole level of investment, part of the infrastructure is disinvestment in certain types of technologies and efforts. The question is, where is that marketplace for you that says, we're going to take this thing down and replace it with something that's more long-lasting? So much of infrastructure looks at things from a short-term process. Challenges that we have long-term problems with this in the next 10 years. I'll go back to water. The amount of water or the lack of water is going to be profound in certain places. So how do we how do we ensure that the investment of money from a government standpoint has the ability to deal with both normal events, there is no more in normal, but abnormal events? The sustainability piece of it is not just a environmental, like are you contributing to the climate crisis? But are, is what you're building going to be durable? You look at technology like a computer, you buy a computer and you think it's going to be two years. If you said, we don't have money for two years, what can we do that's going to last us 10 years? You're going to think very differently. So I think the longer term investment, what we have to look at, whether or not elected officials and higher level people who are seeing things in a short horizon time are buying into that remains to be seen. Some states are getting that. Some governments are getting it. <laughs> Advocacy groups are seeing things in a larger systemic way. And the word I institute is a thing called multi-solving. <laughs> How do you solve a variety of different, from a sustainability standpoint? <laughs> How do you solve a variety of problems that don't just eat one target? So I'll give the example of electric vehicles. We need electric vehicles. There's no question about it. Because some places you need to move people places and People and, people and places to things. But in some cases, how can we change the way we think about our transportation and land use 
And from an equity standpoint, people can't, who can't afford electric vehicles, right? So it's an all, it's a yes and, it's all of. And are we perpetuating a problem in the sake of just getting short-term GHG, which you won't get that much short-term GHG, you'll get long-term GHG reduction for electric vehicles. But in the short term, you're still going to have internal combustion cars sitting in traffic along with the electric vehicles. Can we get less cars off the road? Can we travel less miles? Yeah, we could if we had more transit, electric transit. But those are the kinds of ways of looking at things that I think durable need to be sustainable. Not solving one problem, because if you provide people transit, relatively safe, fast transit, you give them a, a much wider social world they can go into. Mm-hmm. Period in which inequality is profound, solving for inequality. And if you give people transit, then they have access to healthcare, which means they have better healthcare outcomes. So how is your work, your investment in infrastructure going to solve multiple problems that the RFP may not even call for, but it's an added benefit that if you can document it realistically, mm-hmm. it becomes the added advantage. Yeah, that seems like that would make a huge difference in a procurement process as a start. You and I have worked a lot in transportation. You have these single purpose agencies who think their job is only to operate this bus line or this train line or this station when actually those assets could have a lot of other right. benefits and multi-solve. Do you have examples you can point to of where a single-use agency has started thinking more broadly about the benefits they could provide with their yep. assets or their funding? When you and I were in London, we looked at a marginal, a marginal area, area which this invested, and Transfer for London who is facing a fiscal crunch, decided not only were they going to put a multimodal facility, they were also going to put housing on top as a way of solving their financial shortfall. That's multi-solving because the lack of housing creates in many instances the increase in cost in housing. So they're having that benefit of providing transit-served affordable housing. That's a case where someone is thinking in multiple ways about something. The Bay Area, Golden Gate Transit, was supposed to be for one purpose. The Golden Gate Bridge Authority was to build the bridge. And then they got creative and said, we're going to do more than build the bridge. They paid for the bridge, right? It's done. Now they've got transit and they've got a whole host of other things they're doing. The important thing is to ensure that they're not having such mission creep that it's not relatable. But those are good examples of entities that are thinking responsibly in their space how they can play an outsized role of what they're doing. It's multi and while it may not be part of their mandate, their ability to do that work in a positive way builds a larger set of individuals who are going to support what they're trying to do. Yeah, I think those are great examples. In the instance in London and others I've seen, Golden Gate, a few other examples come to mind. It's individuals, community members who often are saying, hey, you have money for this one single thing, but actually we have these 10 problems. And if you looked at it differently, it's like citizen designers are stepping up. I think this has been the history of this, but yep. how do we support that or translate that kind of common sense on the ground into institutions and procurements? I've seen a lot of activists and advocates go to work for corporations like Uber, different companies that provide different kinds of services. And I think that those companies benefit and the people who go to work there benefit. They may not be there forever, but they start to have a good grasp on how does the corporate world think. I think to the extent that the corporate world and people who are bidding for the work of infrastructure understand and act not performatively, but realistically as citizens, 
understand how mm-hmm. does their work, even if they're a multinational corporation, have a unique role to play in helping build out a variety of social tensions. They're the ones that are going to be successful. Success lies not just in the ability to do low, low costs. Success relies on being an earnest and open. Mm. Now, having said that, you can be the best citizen, but if the government entity you're working for is fossilized and not particularly thoughtful about wanting to address the needs of the average individual and trying to focus on not getting well served, then you've got a problem, but maybe that's not mm-hmm. an institution you want to bid with, right? Mm-hmm. So that you start to begin to develop a, a notion, people start to see you as we only work with companies that w- or with government entities that want to do mm-hmm. this in the right way. It becomes part of your brand. Hard to find. It takes patience to be able to develop that kind yeah. of relationship. But, you know, we yeah. know of transit agencies or transit companies that will not go for contracts that have low cost or that are willing mm-hmm. to commit to fair labor practices or good labor practices, and that's what they pride themselves on, then any self-respecting trans agency that's international or that has an international experience by learning is going to go for those particular companies because they know they know how to do it. What it speaks to is also the administrative skills and getting into the administration of an agency. So you can, political change we've seen often starts with the elected officials or folks at the top or the media and then grassroots and the end customers. But then we actually need to change administration, the programs and policies and rules of the machinery to create change. Yeah. Right. So much of the legislature, you know, having been on the side of writing legislation, I had no idea or did not fully grasp the level of discretion that exists within bureaucrats. Again, I don't say that in a pejorative sense interpreting mm-hmm. these nuanced laws into practical, deployable actions becomes a difficulty. Contractors are good people. People who want to be involved in infrastructure are going to be in rooms where bureaucratic decisions are being made or they're influencing them, having a voice. They gain points, I believe, if they're bringing other individuals who are not necessarily their clients, but will ultimately be the beneficiary of the work they're doing, bringing them along and informing mm-hmm. them builds a virtuous relationship with a set of audiences. You go to bid for something, you go, look, we're working with these community groups. They already know about this. They, they're the ones who put this requirement into the RFP by commenting on it. That level of knowledge is time-consuming, but it builds a more permanent and a better relationship all, yeah. if all things yeah. are being... And look localizing the work and doing the, the groundwork. Right. Yep. Daryl, I have two final questions we've been asking all of our guests. Okay. First of all, managing major infrastructure projects can be a stressful ordeal. Where do you find order in the chaos? I think it's complaining to other people about what you're finding and see how they solve. So, um, you know, I know that in philanthropy, um, we always face a series of different challenges. And uh, having humility to say, I have no clue how this problem gets solved. And so ideas, so that's one. I think developing a set, recognizing that in an environment where you have competitors that are working with you, it's difficult. But it's that you're developing relationships with trusted people over time. And to me, it's not like going and saying, hey, how are those Niners doing this thing? Let's go get a beer or let's go hit a golf course. <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about of going and doing interesting things and just being a little silly. I know silly sounds weird, but being a little silly 
or having some fun by just moving around, that's where the best ideas come from. And that's where people can collaborate. I'll give you one story. I don't know that these people are goofy, but I do know they collaborated. The automotive industry was faced with a requirement to do low VOC paints. And no one company, no one automotive manufacturer could singularly invest enough money to have the technology to meet the federal requirements for low VOC, volatile organic compound paints. So they created a collaborative where they all signed that they would participate and the IP would be shared by everyone. That durable relationship has existed for a while. Your ability to create a cohort of people solving a common problem that you all will benefit from I think is the way you deal with the most frustrating things. One last question before I let you go, Daryl. Sure. I know you're a globetrotter. Nonetheless, is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go and see one day? That's a hard question. There's so much other stuff, but there's so much stuff that I want to see. Okay, this is going to sound really weird. I want to go back to Arizona and study what the Maricopa Band of Indians did for water infrastructure. They are avowed water experts. They were in a time when it was stones and moving things around. I think ancient infrastructure is fascinating, much in the same way that when you go to Mexico City and look at the pyramids outside of Mexico City, mm -hmm. the infrastructure there of moving water around in service of tens of thousands of people is fascinating. I would love to go Machu Picchu to learn how that infrastructure worked. Those are things that I have on my list. I like looking at big things where you have to wear a hard hat. There's a reason why I have a hard hat back here. I got a chance to finally see the incinerator that was created in Copenhagen that has a ski slope on top of that. Those kinds of things fascinate me. And then under, and then in New York, they're going to be building another tunnel underneath <laughs> the Hudson. I'd love to see that be. I saw when Los Angeles started putting in their underground subway <laughs> system. I'd love to see what happens when they put the extra war out of the tunnel. Mm, that's a great bucket list, Daryl. Really inspiring. I want to thank you for joining the podcast today. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. I've learned so much from this conversation, Daryl. More than welcome. It's great talking to you and seeing you. I want to say a big thank you to Daryl Young for joining us today. It's wonderful to hear about sustainable infrastructure and all the work he's doing to help build an eco-friendly tomorrow. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. <laughs>